Hi everyone, welcome back to Two Nobodies. We have Patel here. Really excited for my guest today, who I'm going to introduce in a second. If you guys have been loving this podcast, please always like and just subscribe. I haven't really said that too much. I feel feel like it's kind of cheap a little bit. Everyone seems to say that, uh, but I definitely have been encouraged to say that by a few people. So I will do that for for, for those folks there. Um, but our guest today is Jason Anastoff. Oh my goodness, Jason, I really messed up your, your last, yeah, Anastopolop, I feel like Charles Barkley right now, trying to say Giannis's last no, dude, name. The, the person um, who announced my name during my PhD graduation got it um, wrong, so they were like, Anastopolop, it was hilarious, and, and he was totally embarrassed, but I didn't really care, so don't worry about it, it's a, it's a, it's a oh, Nostopolis, but whatever, that's <laughs> fine. Okay, well, I I appreciate that. I'm I, I appreciate also that you're allowing me to go by yeah, Jason because yeah. uh, that just makes it a whole lot easier. I feel a little shame too because I actually had a few Greek friends uh, growing up, and and it was I needed to say these last names, and so um, and I was practicing too. This is completely embarrassing, but um, anyways, appreciate that you're letting that go. Um, I have Jason here to talk about a topic that we have introduced into our podcast. Uh, I would say probably about a couple months ago which is on the fourth industrial revolution. And, and Jason, just a little bit of context and background and sort of why we went down that route. Um, I think Kyle and I just kind of saw that as an area uh, that was really interesting because it touches on so many, uh, so many issues and obviously relevant for, for, you know, we, we have young kids and we talk about parenting and fatherhood a lot and just like the, what it's going to look like for our kids. But obviously we're still at a working age and, and what is it going to look like for us? And so we thought there there were so many angles that you could come at that topic at. So we've had conversations, just Kyle and I kind of just exploring the different, you know, first, second, third, fourth industrial revolutions. We had somebody come in and talk about sort of um, needing to redesign an economy that really works for all of us. And that was really interesting for me on a personal level, though, is an interest in democracy overall. And this, you know, democracy has been... Uh, I, I feel like a, a, a topic of discussion that's really been uh, brought up a lot over the last, you know, four to six years um, uh, more recently. And so my thinking was, let's let's find somebody who can talk who can talk to us about their thoughts on how does democracy go move forward as the fourth industrial revolution is taking shape, as we have these disruptive technologies. What does that do? And lo and behold, you Google this and your name just kind of pops up right there, uh, which is which is fantastic. And so really interested to talk to you about that. But you're you're teaching at Georgia, right? Yeah. University of Georgia in uh, Athens, Georgia. Yeah. Are you living yeah. there? Yeah. Yeah. So you got to give I mean, as Canadians, we're always fascinated by U.S. politics. And Georgia seemed to be, you know, the center of some some stuff in the 2020 election. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah. It seems like 2020 election was so far away, but the fact that, you know, this election is still, people are still uh, believing that it's it wasn't a real thing, still kind of maybe makes it a little relevant. But what was the 2020 election like for someone who was a Georgian? Yeah, so uh, my experience of the election was, I mean, was one of just like nothing really, it's weird, like nothing really changed other than what I was interacting with through the screen, right? So mm -hmm. there was a lot of, of course, discussion about the ballots and Raffensperger and Camp and Donald Trump was going around. If you remember saying, oh, you know, Camp is a rhino, all this other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but to be honest with you, like it was, it, nothing actually really happened per se in the state. And so okay. like, I didn't notice that much of a difference, uh, but it, it was just interesting, you know, being in a place, which is the focus of so much, so much national attention. And that was kind of, that was kind of interesting. But like, the thing is, it's just when you see things on the news, at least for me, it's just hard to make any heads or tails of what is true and what is not. So I don't even, 
I kind of like like I was like I was like I don't know what's happening here, you know, because one you know mm. one one party was claiming that there was uh, fake ballots and another was saying that you know so I was like I don't I don't know what's going on here, but um it was it was kind of exciting just to just to be in the state at the time, but again it was like oh it just mediated through like the news like I, I didn't. You know, I, I live kind of far away from Atlanta, which is really where the, the main action was okay. happening. Yeah. So, yeah, it was just like, um, you know, I guess just like being anywhere else in some ways, you know, in many ways, really. Yeah. Do you think Georgians are, and is it, is would you, folks from Georgia, do they call themselves Georgians? That's an assumption that I have. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, I've only been here for four years. I, I think so. Yeah, I think Georgians is the right way to put it. Yeah. Okay. Just like the people from the country, Georgia, right? But uh, yeah, I yeah. That's right. Yeah, I don't know. That's that. Yeah, that's my guess. Um, but if you don't know, that's all good too. Um, do you think that uh, that Georgians are really? Um, is that going to raise people's participation? Would you say for upcoming elections? Because there's a sense of that they played a role in the 2020 election. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think a lot of it is going to depend on the kind of the whole COVID situation. Although even that mm. I don't think will affect participation that much. Um, but I do believe, I do believe that what you're going to see in the midterm elections, which are these elections coming up is mm. you will see a lot more. And now this is actually a typical thing in, in midterm elections, more Republicans tend to come out. So mm. even though there was an anomaly that happened in um, 2018 where you saw the kind mm. of opposite phenomenon, but yep. I think what you're going to see in the midterms, if everything is copacetic and you know, there's not, a, there aren't big controversies about counting votes for several months, right? Uh, you're going to see a, a lot, you know, more Republican turnout in my opinion. And so mm. I think, that's probably something that is going to happen. Um, and that's, that's what I would expect, like more Republican participation. I think the, you know, the governor is up for reelection. I'm, I got to double check on that, but that's obviously very important, very important seat. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. And, and it's going to, it's going to get pretty crazy around November in my opinion. What's the, cause there was a voting rights uh, bill that was passed, I think recently in Georgia. Right, right. That, if if you're saying that more Republicans typically show up, my my understanding of or the controversy around this bill is that it's probably not going to favor Democratic voters. Yeah, uh, just I because mean, of that's sort what of the demographics say, like, around Democrats. Yeah, for sure. Like that's what they say. But I mean, the bill is. So I heard a lot about the bill on Twitter and news sites. So I decided to check it out myself, and. Mm. The bill is extremely, it's like a very, very, very um, mild version of a, you know, voter ID kind of, in that it basically mm -hmm. applies mostly to absentee ballots. And the major requirement, okay. if I remember correctly, is, and there's actually a really good, um, uh, there are really good articles on this actually published by like CBS, I think, CBS Broadcasting. Um, or whatever their online site. Uh, but I remember the major part of the bill was that, you know, on an absentee ballot, you have to put some identifying information. So whether that be your Georgia driver's license, um, um, I, I think that was the major, or like a Georgia state ID. I think like those were the two major pieces of information that you had to present, okay. but you had to just write your, the number on the ballot or else it would be, um, discarded. Right. So mm. I don't, I don't really, I, I know there's a lot of controversy and there's a lot of people who don't, you know, who don't like the bill, but I just don't see it affecting turnout that much either way, you know? Um, mm. you know, because it's, it's just the, 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 the additional requirement above what you would have to show at a, 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 a poll polling station is, it's just not, um, it's not that, it's not that great. Now, is, is it now other studies have found in the past that when you have uh, voter requirements, 
that it tends to hurt the Democratic Party. But it, mm. even those studies are not that good, and, you know. And they're, mm. they're, I don't I don't think there's any conclusive results just because there have been so few voter restrictions. You know, other than the ones right. that used to have back in like the, the 1920s and things like that during the era of Jim Crow. But that's like that was a totally different thing. I mean, that, like those were mm. like in that age, you had literacy tests imposed and, and, and things like that. I mean, writing down an ID number is not like anywhere near that. So, you know, so I, I just don't think it the, the, the timing of this whole thing, though, Jason, just seems a little little bit weird to me just because you know this whole um big lie thing is still kind of out there and 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 you know it seems like legislators are perhaps maybe responding to that like that's what the optics kind of look like i don't know if there's truth to that or not but that's sort of what it looks like and so it may you, you kind of from afar it might it seems without kind of knowing the exact details of the bill it does seem like you try to it's trying to do something to restrict some of that turnout i don't know but uh, yeah, I mean, so the thing is, I think that every party does try to get their best advantage. So I think mm. it's possible that the, I mean, the, the goal is probably to help Republicans, right? So mm. I wouldn't doubt that that's the goal. I'm just saying, I don't think it's going to matter. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, okay. like, even, okay. even yeah. though, even though that, that's the goal. Um, so that's kind of like where I'm at. Like, I don't think the effect is going to be that great. Like it's certainly not as big as all the hoopla that was going on around surrounding it, you know, like all the, all the the discussions about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I certainly, of course, of course the, the, of course the voter ID bills are, you know, there's, they're meant to help. Republicans because Republicans pass them and that's kind of like yeah I mean just that that's just that's just um, for sure I think that's part of the goal but I just don't think it's going to make that much of a difference to tell you the truth mm. yeah mm. especially because it does, unless uh, now unless unless here's the thing um, so if there's like lockdowns and things like that and, and this 100 percent absentee ballots well that's going to be different right yeah um, yeah. Because I, I think I heard that they're restricting the number of drop boxes and and something like that um, as part of the as part of the bill, and so yeah, if I guess if you have to have absentee balance and you don't have people, you don't have access for people to drop their ballots, that's probably going to change things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, you know, yeah. it, it could it could quite possibly affect the uh, election results, but I just don't see it having that much of an impact. To tell you the truth, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just I mean, yeah. from my from my reading of the bill, you know, I I don't know, I I just like the the major thing is the voting ID the ID requirement, I think, mm. um, and I just don't, you know, everyone has an ID in this state, you know, like whether you know it's and it's mm. whether you have a Georgia a state ID or a driver's license, I mean, you can't you know you can't get liquor or anything or do anything really without an ID. So everyone has an ID, and they're, mm. they're really easy to get. That's the nice thing about Georgia. It's interacting with the government's very nice. I'm like, like I'm from Cal, like I've mm. been in California for many years, and it's very difficult to to even get things like IDs. Um, Why is that? Uh, it's just a process, you know. The bureaucracy's bigger. Um, okay. it, they just make things hard for you. It reminds me of Europe in many ways, mm. um, for better or worse you know, dealing with, like, and and again, for, you know, this is, I've known about European bureaucracies through my father, because he's Greek, and a lot okay. of the things that I had to go through in California kind of reminded me of, of, of Europe in terms of, you know, you have, there's, like, really long delays to get things, and, you mm -hmm. know, you, you have to wait on very long lines. I mean, like, going to the DMV to get a license is, like, it's a, it's just a nightmare. It's a chore. Um, it's a minute. Yeah, it's really it's yeah. really a nightmare. Yeah. Um, whereas with Georgia, it's, it's a lot easier. I, I found just working. You could do a lot of like electronic stuff. There's a lot of good systems here uh, where you could, you know, you could um, you could you could get IDs relatively easily. And uh, so you know, mm. I think that helps a lot. 
Maybe California got better. Uh, now, back I to still the... remember. Like, I, I mean, I haven't. Uh, no, I thought I don't remember. I haven't really. Uh, I haven't interacted with them for a while, thankfully. <laughs> Wasn't everyone from California moving to Texas or other parts of the yeah. other parts of the that's country? That seems to be yeah, a rising thing that's happening. Yeah. Yeah, California yeah. Uh, has a big brain drain going on right now, and they're all moving to like one place. That's Austin. You know, Austin is like mm-hmm. new. I think it's going to be the new San Francisco at some point. It might even be, yeah. and maybe give it like two or three years. Because you have all like the, I mean, of course, in Silk, in San Francisco, you still have Facebook there, like the, the Giants, Google. Right. But uh, YouTube, of course, right? That's which is Google company. Um, yeah. But I think you're getting a lot of new talent moving to Austin. And, you know, we'll see what happens. You know, I, I, I forget what the percentages are in terms of people that left, but. It was pretty large, so yeah, there's going to be a lot of changes in Texas moving forward. I wonder if it's hard to be a startup in in you know Silicon Valley or or you know that part of California just because you're probably going to get eaten up pretty quick. Like, whereas maybe there's a better opportunity for startups in Austin. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So, I mean, a lot of people have studied this in, especially in the uh, in the Bay Area, and mm. there's, it, it. I think it depends, right? It could be easier or harder depending on the type of company you're running. Okay, so in Silicon Valley, it's the, the the reason that everyone wants to go to Silicon Valley is because it's a place where everyone knows that there are all of the tech startup uh, venture capital funds. Everyone is there, and so you can just interact with people all the time because I mean, that's like the whole thing. It's like hmm. having contacts, interacting with people. Um, and getting getting funding and, and you know you, you could be talking with one billionaire one day and then getting funding from him and someone else or her right and someone else the next day and so having that network in uh, in the Bay Area is like that's there's there's no um, there's there, it's just priceless right when it comes to doing things like raising yeah, yeah. venture capital on the other hand you have a lot more competition because everyone's gone there right mm-hmm. so I think. There was probably a point at which if you went to the Bay Area and you were doing like a startup tech company um, and you wanted venture Mm -hmm. capital funding, it was like the perfect time. Maybe that time was like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, something. But right now, unless you're doing some really, really innovative stuff like with AI, you know, it's just there's still so much competition. You know, it's going to be really hard to get the get the interest of anyone in, in venture capital, you know, but there are more venture capitalists yeah. there. So, yeah. So I think people who go to yeah. Austin, they'll probably have, um, if they have a good idea and a good company, they'll probably have a better chance. I'm excited to go there one day. I've, I've, uh, some family out there and, and they've always been calling me for a while. And they just say that the development is, is unreal. That's happened over the last couple of years. So I'm excited to go visit there one day. Yeah. I've never been there actually either. So <laughs> me too. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, quickly back to the voting yeah. thing, because I, I there was a conversation that was happening. I think I don't know if it was if, if it was most of Canada, but I don't know if you know about our voting system. It's like it seems so archaic because for the longest time I've always thought, let's make this electronic. Let's it's, it'll just make it easier for people to do online voting, which, you know, is probably still a good thing. Mm-hmm. But we just do paper ballots with the check mark, and it like we've never had issues with anything. I've never heard of any issues, at least in all the elections that I voted in. And so, what I see what's kind of happening, you know, in 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 the states, and maybe it's because my understanding is like the states control sort of how the voting system happens, like the yeah. mechanism for voting and all that. Right. And maybe that sort of is, is sort of a bigger issue. Whereas um, Canada is kind of more national. You do have election like. You know, I'm from Alberta. We have elections in Alberta. There's elections in Ontario or whatever. But generally, the, the system is the same across the board. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I was just thinking, I was like, man, this paper system seems to work. Uh, and maybe we shouldn't be changing things. So, Yeah, I mean, I don't like I, – I like the paper system too um, for the most part. In the places I've been to, you know, there's been – so California, when you go to vote, you fill out a paper ballot and then they slide it through like a machine and it's read and recorded. Mm. Uh, and, and they, and I think they have, well, they got voting machines recently, of course. Um, and here there's a combination of voting machines and paper ballots. 
So you can either choose to get a, and depending on the precinct you're at, you're in, you can either choose to get a paper ballot, or you can choose to use a voting machine. Um, personally, uh, now now when you're talking about online voting, that's that's a whole different thing, right? So that's like yeah, that would be that's like probably a system where that the federal government probably wants to develop, but uh, if they were to develop that yeah. system, they're going to get a lot of opposition from the states for sure, because mm. um, you know. Although, I don't know, like maybe the states themselves will develop some kind of um, online voting system, which which would be really interesting. But yeah, an, on, an online voting system where you could like vote for home on a website, that is something I think that's going to occur in the future for sure. I just don't know how mm. it's going to work. I mean, a lot of people were claiming it's going to be a kind of blockchain system um, and mm. um, something like that, uh, where you could use something called a decentralized identity to uh, match your identity, a digital identity, to your you know state records in order to be able to, uh, to vote, right. um, and and I, I definitely see something like that happening in the future, and you know with that is going to be a lot of problems, a lot of controversy. Um, I, I think all states might not adopt it. I think there's going to be some states mm-hmm. that adopt it first and others that don't, but. Um, Online voting, I definitely see that being something that's going to happen in the future. Um, but I agree with you. I think a paper ballot standard is the best. <laughs> I, I don't really see any reason to. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm despite the fact that I study technology for a living, uh, I, I'm kind of like anti-tech in a lot of ways. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, and, and that's that's definitely one of them. I like I like the paper ballot, especially because you can just have uh, an audit trail, which is nice. Um, and now that's why people are saying blockchain is a, is a good idea. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't be yeah. like decentralized, though, in the sense of like Bitcoin is decentralized. Right. It would be like right. the state has a blockchain, right? And then, in fact, I was actually, actually, I was actually discussing this exact you know, topic with some people at Georgia Tech. So the state would have like a blockchain and they would kind of uh, give you access to an electronic ballot and then that you know, when, when you voted, your information would be recorded on a blockchain that could not be altered. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, that it, there would have to be some system where the votes were validated by the localities if you were to stay within the framework of U.S. law. And so maybe, uh, uh, you know, a precinct or something, people working at the precinct would see the votes on a blockchain. They would say, oh, OK, well, these are good. So, I mean, you can't alter them anyway. Right. So there might but that that doesn't how does that really change almost like it's almost like the current system right somebody from the precinct has to validate the votes coming in anyways yeah and that seems to be where some of the controversy is is like who are these people validating these votes yeah yeah but obviously i get yeah i mean the interesting thing and with the online voting stuff would be like if people are voting online i mean there's i i I don't think that there's ever going to be a fully online voting system Mm. right i think it's going to be a hybrid thing at least for the foreseeable future where you have some precincts that unless there's some really vast change that the federal government implements you know that would have to be a constitutional challenge right but um Mm. i think what's going to happen is you're going to have systems where you have uh some you know they have all the precincts open so people can vote in person you're going to have the absentee ballots, right, as always. And then you're also mm-hmm. going to have maybe an option to do it online. And mm-hmm. so the interesting thing is, like, how are people at the precincts going to validate online stuff? Um, I actually, you know, to tell you the truth, that it's, it, was not, it wouldn't be that hard, really. Because you, you could just, for certain people on the blockchain who live within a precinct, you could just add them to the role of voters, you know. Uh, and, mm. and, and like a final record. So you can like pipe all the data, you see what I mean? From all the sources yeah, to yeah. one single source that, that everyone could see. So that's kind of how what I see happening yeah. in the future. And uh, unless, again, unless there's some like drastic election law change. So um, I, I think I think it Well, blockchain okay. is just one of those texts that's just going to enable a bunch of things, hey? What's that? I was going to say blockchain is just one of those texts that's just going to enable a bunch of things. And so why wouldn't it enable online voting? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, blockchain is going to be how all transactions occur in the future, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm. Um, I think eventually they're going to get rid of cash. And by, like, there is a they. Like, they are the central banks, right? Because, yeah. right? So, uh, if you look, every single country in the world has a central bank. So, Canada has a central mm. bank. U.S. has a central bank. Of course, Federal Reserve, right? Mm. Uh, Mexico mm. has a central bank, right? In fact, uh, I recently was working on a project where I wanted to kind of understand how the central banks are developing a, a digital currency and like what they're looking for in this digital currency. It's called the central bank digital currency. And I realized in while working on that project that like every country in the world has a central bank. It's crazy, right? So I think what's mm. going to happen in, in, the, in the future uh, with the blockchain stuff, I don't know what's going to happen to Bitcoin or Ethereum. I, I, I really don't know, right? Um, or the other cryptos. Uh, I've, I've been involved in that market for quite a bit. But I do think what's going to happen in the future is that you're going to have central banks issuing a digital currency directly to people. Or maybe I don't, it's possible that they could have a system where they're going to um, issue the, the digital currency to banks and then still have the banks around. But I don't, mm. I just, you know, technically speaking, if they wanted to, they could have a system where they actually have a direct link to people, uh, the public, mm -hmm. and all of the transactions that occur in an economy are on their blockchain which is called a permission blockchain. Now, permission, are you familiar with this term at all? No. So there are two types of blockchains. There are permissionless blockchains, and there are permission blockchains. And permissionless blockchains are basically decentralized blockchains like Bitcoin, um, like Bitcoin's blockchain, Ethereum's blockchain, where um, the validation of transactions is required, uh, what's required for validating transactions is that uh, a group of validators validate that those transactions in a decentralized fashion and that makes the kind of transaction go through. And so, and there's no like central control of the blockchain. Now, technically speaking, you could probably with blockchain analytics, you could definitely trace uh, transactions, currency, tra and you could figure out like, you know, especially when you see really big transactions, you could figure out like, you know, whose wallet is uh, you know is, is a particular wallet address and um, you know what what other people they were dealing with, but it requires a little bit of work. I mean, it's not mm. it would require some more data analysis. Now, a permission blockchain, on the other hand, is basically a totally private uh, blockchain that is run uh, by a centralized institution like the central banks, and they uh, it's kind of like a uh, a one way mirror. Right, they have all the information about all the transactions, so they issue a digital currency. The digital currency mm -hmm. is uh, basically a like a, a trackable piece of data. That's what you could think of it as. And they could also issue the wallets. So now, if they issue mm -hmm. the wallets and they issue the currency, and if you have a digital ID, well, then you basically have all your transactions um, on their blockchain. And, right. you know, they kind of, they become much more influential, right? Um, and so I think, I mean, I think that's kind of what's going to happen. And, and so the reason I'm mentioning that, because uh, you mentioned blockchain, is that going back to the voting, the voting issue, um, you, could, you could adopt that kind of technology, the exact same type of technology in a voting context, but at the state level, mm. right? So a state could develop right. its own blockchain. It's actually really easy to develop a blockchain. I mean, you could you could do a computer exercise like if you know a program in Python or something like that, you could actually write okay. your own little blockchain that you have control over, and that you know um, that you could view transactions on. So it's actually not that difficult. Um, so so yeah, I mean, yeah. I think I think in the future what you're going to see is a, either an abrupt or a gradual transition from cash to digital currency, central bank digital currency. And maybe there's still going to be cryptos around that serve useful functions like Ethereum, for sure, probably not for sure. I'm not going to say for sure, but probably Chainlink, which is an or you know, it's not really a crypto. Mm -hmm. It's more of like an like a data exchange system, Oracle service, right? Um, XRP, which is like a set centralized settling system. 
Stellar, all those guys. You're going to see those still around, but um, you know, there's going to like there'll probably be like some kind of digital currency where every transaction that occurs is on this big ledger. That's that's really um, you know that the cent- that central banks happen to have. So control. I wonder. I wonder. I wonder if uh, Jason that. Um the the desires for like a cryptocurrency my understanding one of the desires is around that decentralization is taking this sort of power away from these centralized institutions um but i wonder if it would be different for for voting i would think that people wouldn't want that as decentralized they probably want it kind of more yeah. permission based uh whereas yeah because you wouldn't <laughs> it would be i think people would have a hard time with that so the thought of having that's interesting the thought of like the central banks coming up with digital currencies and having it on their own blockchain you know there probably would would be a natural adoption that happens but i i suspect there probably would be still be some resistance that would drive people to like sort of the current kind of cryptos out there yeah what do you think yeah yeah definitely so I think there would be a lot of resistance, right? I, I, not not just a little, yeah. Because the plan is, um, at least for what I've seen from the digital euro and the digital yuan, the plan is basically, um, you know, the the digital euro in particular. They had sent a survey out to some bunch of people in Germany, and they asked them, you know, while we're developing a digital euro, what's your biggest concern? Of course. People said the biggest concern that they have is privacy. They don't want central banks to be tracking their transactions, right? Mm. Or preventing them from transacting and things like that. Um, so last time I checked, I remember they were like, you know, them saying, oh, well, that's, that's cool. So, okay, so how about this? You can have privacy for small transactions, but not big ones, right? The big, the big transactions mm. where we're going to be have, you know, it's going to be full trans transparency uh, on our end. Right. <laughs> so then you might be wondering, well, what, what's a small or big transaction? And like the first thing that came to mind, was like, right. no, maybe they mean like 20,000 euros or whatever, 10,000 euros, no, 50 euros. <laughs> so that's what? small transaction. And I mean, with inflation, it's obviously going to be higher. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's obviously gonna. I mean, the 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 what the fifty euros could buy you with inflation is obviously gonna get lower, right? Um, and so, yeah, yeah. so um, yeah. So I, I mean, I think that's one of the proposals that are out there, and so there will be a lot of pushback, and I, and I think mm-hmm. that might drive people to buy things like Monero and Bitcoin and things like that, like those types of cryptocurrencies. Um, but it's also going to hurt them if. The central banks try to, uh, or the pol- you know, government policymakers try to ban those cryptocurrencies, which they probably mm-hmm. will, uh, or at least very heavily regulate certain types of cryptocurrencies that that they don't want around. Now that doesn't mean that you still can't use them. I mean, they tried to. I think they tried to ban Bitcoin in Nigeria, and people still use it. Like no one. You know, because it's decentralized, right? That's you could do stuff like that, but it will make it a lot more difficult to use it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, mm. you know, we'll see what happens, but it'll be it'll be interesting no matter what. There's definitely going to be um, a lot of pushback, and, and, I, and I don't think they're going to go from like like the current system, which is cash and banks and you know just regular fiat currency, to only digital currency. It's going to be slow. I think it's going to be first be, you know, you'll you'll have you know the availability of a digital dollar or euro, whatever it is. Yeah. At yeah. first, with cash that you can get from your bank, and then eventually that'll just be phased out. The cash part will be phased out, and then there's only going to be the the digital currency. In my opinion, I mean, I could be wrong. So. Oh, I'm I'm sure you're right. Governments never really sort of do a 180 on anything, let alone yeah, the because they don't have financial to, right. system where our currencies are going to roll out. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. That probably that probably makes sense. I wonder though if um, you know, going to thinking linking this to sort of democratic institutions uh-huh. and, and democracy in general, if governments can't necessarily or regulators can't keep up with where technology is going and what people sort of really want. So you talk about sort of the needs that people have when it comes to crypto. 
if governments can't come up with, you know, an alternative option, that's just going to sort of perpetuate this sort of um, lack of trust or faith in democratic institutions going forward. And, and that's sort of what I wonder, and that actually kind of prompted this, the bigger conversation I wanted to have with mm-hmm. you is just like these disruptive texts and what the influence is going to be on, you know, the mindset that people have or the faith that people have in sort of, um, you know, typical Western liberal democracies. Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, question. Kind of really, really, really interesting point. So I teach a class on politics. It's called Politics and Technology at the University of Georgia. And in that Mm. class, I assigned a reading by a, uh, I guess you can call him a technologist or a sociologist of technology named uh, Jacques Ellul, who's a French, very interesting person. And one thing really struck me about Elul, so in his book um, called The Technological Society, he basically gives us a picture of how technology will shape all different spheres of life in terms of economics, in Mm -hmm. terms of politics and things like that. And there's one particular quote that really caught my attention there. And that is that he made the claim that in this quote that um, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, that technology will eventually make Western liberal values, like classical liberal values, mm-hmm. um, it will make them moot. And mm-hmm. In the sense of, in this sense, right? Now he's, not, now, he's not saying that, you know, the technology itself will, will somehow render these you know, the values uh, as, as useless or whatever. His claim was that the so-called technocratic class would be so far ahead of the government that they would just basically run things, right? Hmm. And so if they run things, then there's, not, there's really no, you know, these things like rights and things like that, it's just not going to be as important. Um, because they have more power and they have more money, they have more power. Mm-hmm. Um, and where they don't have power, they can, they can buy power, right? Or they can influence power, mm-hmm. influence the government. So that's certainly something that, you know, I think is concerning. And I think, I think he has a pretty good point there, <laughs> to tell you the truth. So, yeah. So that's- it seems like that's kind of a little bit of story kind of, of that is sort of happening, yeah. right? You're seeing this play happen within the tech sector and, how, you know, congressional politicians just don't understand really that business. And the tech sector seems to just be pulling fast ones over them yeah, because yeah. government doesn't have the expertise, right? Yeah, yeah not only that, yeah. they, don't, they don't have the expertise, nor do they have uh, the resources. I mean, Google is way more powerful than the U.S. Congress, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but it's just, it is what it is, right? It's... I mean, Google has worldwide influence. I mean, just if you just consider the scope of influence, I mean, obviously the U.S. Congress has worldwide influence and things, you know, things like that. But um, really what, where the tech uh, powers, uh, where they derive their power, their, not, not authority per se, but where they derive their influence is from mm. the ability for, 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 it's literally two things. Like, first of all, the data, right? No hmm. one has more data than Facebook. The U.S. government doesn't have nearly... Think about it. The U.S. government has what? The census, right? They have your social security number. Um, they probably, you know, they're obviously NSA and stuff like that. They have surveillance, things like that. But that information is nowhere near as... Um, you know, uh, let's say, how can I put it? It's nowhere near as complete as the type of information that Facebook has or Twitter has. You know, because sure. they have, yeah. E- yeah, everything you say, right? And you put it there, so it's, you do it voluntarily, right? They have all your personal details. They have, 
you know, the information, like, like people like to check in where they go, right? So they have that information. Mm-hmm. They have information about who your friends are. The U.S. government does, has no way. How are they going to know who your friends are, right? There's no, there's yeah, no way yeah, that they would yeah. know. They have information about your political ideology, about your, you know, your taste in food. Location. Stuff. Yeah, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, so that, so there's no question in my mind that, it's that data that gives them power. And then if you combine that with AI, oh man, you, you, you have all the ability, you have all the data from, from all these people. And then with AI, you can use that to make predictions about what people are going to say, what people are going to do, things to censor. Um, you mm-hmm. could, you know, you can, um, yeah. I mean, you, and you could change people's behavior. Right, because you know they're you know whether people like it or not. I know there was like a controversy about a Facebook study where uh, they did a big experiment on people, and people you know everyone was very angry about that. Right, it was like an A/B test more than an experiment. But they're doing experiments all the time. I mean, I, I still think they're doing experiments all the time uh, on Facebook. Yeah. It's just it's very subtle. Like the way you do experiments in a context like that is, you know, um, you just randomly tweak one or two or three or four posts, whatever it is, uh, in someone's feed, right? Or maybe you change the way you, you, um, you display information, right? Um, and that's an experimental treatment. And then, so then, and then they have like thousands of people like me and social scientists, uh, designing these experiments and then going back, analyzing the data and trying to figure out what the treatment effects are, you know, of, you know, like like if I, if we if we changed uh, um, if we changed this piece of someone's feed and maybe gave them the opposite uh, information that was opposing their ideology, did we change how they th- how they were thinking about a certain issue over the course of time? You could do all stuff like this, you know, with if you combine text analytics, AI, and things like that. It's just crazy. Um, so yeah, so I mean the you know but. Just, just these social media companies themselves, um, and again, it's all voluntary. No one's, you know, that no one's like, no, there's no force involved at all. I mean, everyone, you know, people give their data, and they like interacting on social, you know, social media sites. With that info, you could both influence behavior, and you can, um, you know, you could learn about what people do, where they are. You don't need surveillance, like. What do you what do you need surveillance? Like, yeah, I mean, you don't need surveillance. I mean, look at what happened on the no. January sixth, right? Everyone had their phones with them, right? The January sixth mm-hmm. Capitol riots, right? Or everyone had their phones with them, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, they were probably on. Maybe they weren't even on Facebook. I don't know, right? But mm-hmm. you know, they were able to like do a whole sweep of everyone, right? So you don't, you know, that's not even the NSA. You just ask Facebook for. <laughs> For the data or well that's what i was going to say is like the government these governing institutions you know fbi whoever is involved in this um they're going to go to these tech camp companies probably for the answers right like and the tech companies have all this all this power like it like everything that you just tell me jason makes me think that nothing good for nothing good comes out of this for democracy but what are your thoughts on this? Like, is, like are, is democracy as we kind of know it, the way we engage with the electorate, the way sort of we elect politicians, all that kind of stuff, these institutions that have been established for years and years and years, is, is it kind of under, is it under threat? Like, what, what's the influence of AI in all this in politics? Like, yeah, so... It's a big question. I no, know. no, 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 it's a great question. It's a great question. And, and I, have some, I have some thoughts on it. So... I think it is and it isn't, and this is why. And it all depends on, I think it all depends on how people react to things, right? So this this tech, Facebook, Twitter, Google, um, I know it gets demonized a lot as big tech. And there are lots of problems with it. There's like surveillance and all this other stuff, right? Um, they're very powerful. They have all this data, like you know. But with this tech, people are able to learn about things that they would never have been able to learn about. You know, they're mm-hmm. able to find information really quickly about their polling station. They're able to, um, 
you know, they're just able to interact with, uh, you know, all this information that they weren't able to interact with in the past. And that is very empowering, right? Um, and so, and I think in that sense, the fact that there's all that information out there and people are able to access it, I mean, information that only, you know, specialists would have availability for it too, you know? Like, I mean, scientific journals and things like that. You know, that's something that is really unprecedented. And I know a lot of people would say, well, there's all these like non-experts reading and talking about things like scientific literature and things like that. Um, but, you know, there's also a lot of people who are experts engaging with it and who are, you know, who are, um, who are pointing out legitimate flaws and things, you know, in uh, academic research and journalistic research and so on. Um, that is really, that is really uh, amazing. Now, that being said, so I think there's, I think the fact that the information is available to everyone and we can discuss things in an open forum, that's very helpful for democratic institutions. Positive, yeah. So, yeah. on the other hand, um, there's, uh, there's a lot of, the, the companies themselves have a lot of power and influence in terms of how they can affect someone's thoughts or behavior in that indirect way, right? So a lot of studies, some, some of the studies have shown with Facebook that, you know, if you show people certain things on their feed, you could change their mood, right? Um, mm. You know, you could even like, you know, on Twitter or something like that, if you, if you portrayed something as being, uh, you could you could get people angry, right? Uh, by manipulating their feed, you could make you could make them. You can't like you can't like never you can never like make someone do something directly using these technologies, but you can spur people to action through triggering them or whatever it might be, making them yeah. angry, yeah. and that can have very important and um, large scale effects. Now. The extent to which these companies are empowered to influence behavior in that way is entirely dependent upon the extent to which people are influenced by them, right? So a lot depends on whether a lot of the whatever behavioral manipulations that, uh, um, that a lot of these companies use are effective or not in terms of how much power they have and how much, uh, the extent to which they're able to, to either circumvent or, um, mm -hmm. lessen the, uh, viability of the democratic process. Right. So, so that's mm -hmm. really, those are the two, those are the two things that, you know, that we're facing in terms of tech's influence on democracy. So like on the one hand, you have the amazing amount of information, uh, that's available, unprecedented amount of information. And then on the other hand, you have the ability of these uh, tech companies to influence behavior in ways that no, I mean, no politician would have been able to do, you know, before no. directly like that. So there's, yeah. Well, and, and as, a, as somebody who's on the, on the recipient side of, of the tech, it's almost unavoidable. Like you, it's so hard to not get influenced by some of this yeah. tech. Even if you, like I try to turn off my location data and, you know, everyone's seen the social dilemma and yeah, yeah. I'm sure people have tried to sort of, you know, respond based on that. But, you know, even if you turn off your location data, Google is integrated with a lot of like public transit systems and the mapping and all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, to some extent, it's almost unavoidable. I don't know how you get around that, right? W without... Sort no, of, there's no, uh, there's no way to, I, I think linked to some of these tech companies. Yeah. I don't think there's really any way to get around stuff like location. I mean, if, if, if someone wants to, if someone really wants to know your location, they, they can figure it out just by, just yeah. by using yeah. like, I think, you know, there's like certain features of phones, probably backdoors and things like that. Again, I'm not hundred percent sure, but you know, there's, there's ways to figure out your location within a certain radius of a cell tower. So, you know, and with 5G, which is, you know, it's more like densely packed, um, mm -hmm. kind of low, um, low millimeter waves, you know, it's going to be much easier to do things like that, right? Because like 5G, 
Like people think a five G tower is like they're gonna be these big towers. They're not. They're just like tell like little poles, you know. But they're all over mm-hmm. the place. There's there's a lot of them because mm-hmm. um, because that's how five G works. It's very localized, you know. Right. It's just that there yeah. are a lot of yeah, yeah. you know in certain places there's gonna be more five G than others, right? So uh, with that kind of stuff, yeah, you're probably gonna see you're probably going to see uh, more a greater ability to uh, track precise location even without your consent you know so not much you can do about that unfortunately <laughs> no yeah jason one of the disruptive texts that i'm kind of interested in and i think that some of your your research correct me if i'm wrong kind of um leverages this is, is around machine learning and deep learning and and maybe if you don't mind, we tried to, Kyle and I tried to explain this in one of our podcasts. We probably just didn't do it justice. Would you mind kind of just talking about sort of how deep learning works? And then my understanding is that you've kind of applied that to looking at sort of how politicians, um, I think like through their images or whatever that they portray online, uh, how how they, you've used that technology to kind of do some analysis on on how politicians portray themselves. Yeah, sure. So uh, deep learning is something that it sounds like really exotic and mysterious to many people, but the basics of it is this, right? You have some input data, right? That that input data could be an image. Uh, it could be, um, you know, a description, like, like a, a person's characteristics, right? Uh, whatever, right? And you want to make some prediction about that input. So in the case of an image, you let's say you want to make a prediction about whether there's a car and um, uh, or let's just stick with the car example, like whether there's a car in the image or not, right? Mm-hmm. So deep learning is simply a machine learning technique, which and a machine learning technique is just a prediction machine that allows you to take a really complicated input, uh, like an image, and I'll explain why image is complicated in a second, um, and get out a prediction with a high probability of being correct, right? So, um, now the way deep learning works is, is, you know, it's a little bit complicated, but the, the simple explanation of it is that it has something called layers, and each layer has a lot of parameters. Uh, if you're familiar with things like regression analysis, the parameter are like the mm. beta coefficients and things like that. Um, and so what deep learning does is that it allows you to take data that's very high dimensional, pass it through this algorithm that has all these different parameters, and that algorithm is able to make estimates linking the parameter values to the problem to the output which is a label you're interested in mm-hmm. like a car or something like that now the reason that images are so hard to deal with is because images are not what you think they are when you see them like when you see a, an image your brain automatically recognizes the things in the image a car uh, whatever mm-hmm. a boat or whatever it might be in a particular image um, but a computer doesn't see an image like that at all. A computer simply sees an image as a grid of pixel intensity values mm-hmm. that, um, that are, you know, go between, you know, zero and 255. Okay. Now in a color image, let's say you have a 50 by 50 image, right? Um, 50, 50 by 50 pixel image, right? In a mm-hmm. color image, that would be represented on the machine as three 50 by 50 matrices, like 50 rows, 50 columns. And mm-hmm. those matrices have three, ch- what are called channels, red, green, blue, RGB, right? And each of those channels has a pixel intensity value that goes from zero to 255. So that 50 by 50 image is, if you think about it, right, it's like, um, what's 50 times 50? It's like 2,500, right? 2,500, uh, yeah. Pixel values for one matrix, but you multiply that by three, right? So, you know, then you have, um, you know, 7,500, right? 
uh, mm-hmm. pixel values just for that really small image. And the point of the what what deep learning does is that it's supposed to take all of that pixel value data, and which is again it's just numbers, intensity numbers, right? And it's supposed sure, to somehow yeah, yeah. make sense of. Uh, you know, whether this pattern of numbers, pixel numbers, are associated with this type of object. Now, the problem sounds Mm. not that difficult, you know, when you're thinking about an object like a car taken from one perspective. But remember, uh, not only are there different types of cars, but they have, there's car, there's all types of different perspectives. And then there's all types of different colors and there's all types of different shapes and all these other things. So... The thing that deep learning does really well is that with enough data, uh, you can train it or teach it to recognize this pixel pattern known as a car or whatever it is you want to recognize um, in a way that you have a very high probability of being correct, um, you know, for, for in any situation really or any scenario. And that's what makes, that's why people are so excited about deep learning um, and that's why it's used pretty much in all of the image recognition, all of the image recognition software that, you know, government uses and things like that, right? So all, they all use deep learning mm. algorithms. But really, I mean, at the end of the day, it sounds mysterious, but it's really just like a prediction algorithm. There's, you, you know, mm. you teach it to identify, you know, patterns and pixels that correspond to different objects. And then once you teach it that, then it's just able to go out in the world and to just start labeling things. So like you train this deep learning algorithm to to identify cars. And so every time you throw an image image in it, it'll give you the probability of of a car being part of that image. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, that's Mm -hmm. kind of how that works. So... um, it just kind of learns on its own, right? Like that's sort of the next level. Well, it like... does. It kind of like so. Okay. It, yeah, I mean it. It it learns on its own, in the sense that. So like okay, so the way that all machine learning works is that you have a you have to train it. So, and if I wanted to make a prediction about um, whether a car was in an, in an image, I would have to have a database of a hundred thousand images. And those images would have to be labeled as containing a car or not, right? Hmm. So then what you would do in a deep learning context or any machine learning context is that you would just tell the, you would just kind of um, tell the algorithm to take that data um, using the pixel data that you have from the images and to make a prediction about whether there's a car or not. So in that sense, in that part of the learning process, it learns the per, it learns the pixel like the correspondence between the pixel patterns and the object that you want to you know make predictions about right so mm-hmm. yeah I mean it, 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 it kind of it learns by its, by itself in that in that in that context but you see it's not really that different if you've ever studied statistics or um, or done just data analysis using multiple regression um, right you could. The, you know, it's, it's like saying, like saying that the machine, like the deep learning learns about the pixel patterns itself is like saying that a regression model learns about the coefficient values when you just make a simple linear regression. It's, it's very, it's very it, the, mm. the pro, like the, the, uh, the way in which these algorithms learn is very similar in that way. They're just, you're just estimating parameters, right? Um, Interesting. Now, then there's another process that's called the, the testing portion of any machine learning process where uh, then you see how accurate your predictions are. Um, and so that's the part where, you know, you, you, you try to gauge like, well, what, you know, out of all the cars that I had labeled as cars that I know are labeled as cars, what percentage of those were correctly identified and things like that. Um, so right. all of machine learning is really that testing and training, that training testing process. Right, but it, you know, yeah. it does learn by itself technically, but you have to tell it what you want it to look for. Okay, so that's really yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah it totally makes sense. Uh, just to kind of wrap this up, maybe overall, do you feel, do you feel like, uh, are you worried about democracy? I know it's a big question, but are you worried about democracy with some of these dis- disruptive texts? Is there a way to summarize? Could you summarize sort of really what you're 
you're concerned about, or do you think that there are incredible opportunities that maybe we're we're not seeing or being or, or losing sight of? Yeah, um, I think there's with these technologies. My biggest concern is that they will be centrally controlled. Because if they're mm. centrally controlled, that is a problem, right? Um, and if if and if you're not, you know, there these a lot of these technologies are extremely powerful, and so if the internet somehow becomes like centrally controlled, which it's not right now. I mean, you, you have lots of different internet service providers and the internet service providers don't really get involved at all, right? It's very decentralized mm. in that sense. Um, and so that allows a lot of freedom of speech, a lot of freedom of uh, discussion, a lot of kind of freedom of expression more generally. It allows communities to develop online, which is a very, very nice thing. And in many ways, it almost even allows local businesses to uh, to thrive and things like that, you know. So as long as there's that decentralized nature of the internet, I think that, you know, democracy, it'll be fine. It'll actually, you know, probably promote democracy more, right? I mean, I, th I think it'll be good for the mm. good thing for democracy. On the other hand, Interesting. if it, for whatever reason, if it becomes not decentralized, <clears throat> where maybe you have to say, have a state ID to access it or to access certain sites or something like that, like the way that kind of China does things, then the, the internet itself just becomes a control system, right? Um, you know, it becomes a very large scale control system where you could still have a lot of freedom within it, but it's more difficult, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that's, so a lot of depends on what happens in the future. Very and, um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, last two questions. They're just about you. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to, to see the questions I sent you, but, uh, if there were five people dead or alive that you could have a meal with, share a meal with, who would those five people be? Yeah, I, I was thinking about this and I, I really couldn't get past, <laughs> I really couldn't get past um, like a couple, like maybe one or two, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of give you, um, I'll kind of give you a couple. So I, I really, so Rocket Lul would definitely be on the top, on the kind of the top of my list for sure. The, the tech, technology uh, sociologist that I was talking about. Um, I really oh, the French, the French guy. The French guy, yeah. Um, okay, I think he yeah, died yeah. recently, actually. He's, um, he's, okay. his, a lot of his work was pretty recent. Um, I would definitely want to talk to St. Augustine because he has a lot of interesting, mm -hmm. interesting works. Um, I've, I've read some of his stuff. I find it really fascinating. Um, I would want to talk to uh, Richard Feynman, who I admire tremendously um, as a as kind of a person and a physicist. I think he's just really an incredible person. Um, let me see, mm -hmm. who else would I want to? Yeah, who else would I want to? See, that's the problem. I, I had like uh, definitely Dostoevsky would be another person who I admire tremendously. Who's that? Sorry, uh, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, the uh, the Russian uh, the Russian author. Okay. Are you familiar with the stuff like uh, crime and punishment? And, no, I, uh, I'm not. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So he's he's a really amazing fiction author. Brothers Karamazov. Sound familiar? Okay. Yeah, he's he's really awesome. I, yeah. Um, and other than that, like I I don't have any political leaders. I, like, most of these people are like intellectuals because they happen to be really interesting. Mm -hmm. And actually, you know, there's one more person who I have right behind me in a collection, and that is Philip K. Dick. So Philip K. Dick was probably one of the most famous science fiction writers of the 20th century. And he developed a lot of the ideas for uh, movies like Minority Report and um, Scanner okay. Darkly, Blade Runner and things like that. So mm -hmm. um, he is ex an extremely interesting person. Uh, he's a little nuts, but he's extremely interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I would definitely want to hang out with him because just because 
Cool. I really just want to hear what he has to say. So. <laughs> you just want these cerebral conversations over dinner, hey? Yeah, I just, I, yeah, I just want to, I just want to hear how these guys. <laughs> I want to know how these people think, you know, I mean, especially in a more. Yeah, that's cool. Just in a more um, free flowing way, because you know, if you know yeah. someone through their writing, it's a different thing. You know, it's more formal. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, beyond the circle of life, Jason, what do you know for sure? What do I know for sure? Oh, um, I know that in my, so I, I know that we are meant to have free will and that's, that's, that would be my, hmm. yeah, that's, that's, that's one thing I know for sure. We are meant to have free will, whether we're allowed to exercise it <laughs> is another question, but I know that we are meant to have free will. So that's one thing I know for um, sure. Yeah. Jason, I appreciate your time. There's actually so much more I wanted to talk to you about. Um, and so who knows, maybe if you're open to it, we can, we can do it again yeah, sometime. I just appreciate you. First of all, just even answering my email, I sent Jason just like a random email and he was, he happily responded. So I always appreciate that. Uh, Jason, I'll put all your information on our show notes and, and all that. And you can check out Jason's research. Uh, Jason, thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks and, so much. And uh, hopefully, I don't know if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever been to this part of Canada, but uh, the Rockies are beautiful. Yeah, so yeah. I'm gonna do a little plug for that. But um, you know, we'd love to see you out here uh, one time. But uh, uh, take care of yourself and appreciate your time today. All right. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much for having me.